I'm, I'm um, trying to get maps that, um, that I can, or that I'm trying to order some maps. I want to make sure that I'm ordering the right one. I sent some emails this week and I didn't get an answer back. Um, but a lot of you have, have uh, said that you really like this map here. And so I'm going to try to order a few copies of those. I think I can get them for around $10 a piece, but really nice. Got a lot of your main spots on here all the way down. Of course, this is a great map of Israel here as well. Um, but this one gives you an overview of the entire area. All right, so this is the area that we're talking about right here, this little, this little section. Here's the Sinai Peninsula, which, of course, all of that is Egypt. Okay, do you remember what is on this side of Israel? Jordan, right, and Jordan goes all the way up pretty much, this whole mountain range. What's at the top, do you remember? What's at the top of Israel on their northwest side? Lebanon, Lebanon, and then what's at the top on the northeast side? Syria, very good. And then, um, uh, well, Saudi Arabia is down here. It's a little bit farther down than that, but uh, very good. So you, you got this. And... Uh, Brother Johnny said it already, but what did Jordan used to be before it came, became Jordan? Edom, right. And so that's how you see it in the Bible. You don't really see the country of Jordan in the Bible, uh, but you do see Edom, and that was that area right there. Other sections that are, that are there as well. But what we want to talk about tonight is the wilderness of Paran. Anybody without, uh, before we get into it, know who was known for being in the wilderness of Paran? There's actually a few. There's a few references to it in the Bible of people that were there, but, but three in particular that we're going to look at. Does anybody know? Josh, Ishmael. Ishmael is one of them. In fact, that's the first one. So let's go ahead and uh, look. Do I got control there, Brother Josh? Is it working? It's not moving for me. I don't know what's going on. Okay, there you go. Well, that, you moved that, didn't you? Would it be the battery? Let's see. Well, he's looking up those connections and making sure they're good. Let's look at Genesis 21, because this is where it's at. So, Genesis 21, obviously, you have the birth of Isaac, right? And you read that whole story. God came and told them, Sarah, at 90 years old, Abraham was 99, that uh, they were going to have a child. And, of course, Sarah laughed. There we go. We got it. Okay, so here you go. Uh, I told you last week that I uh, actually took some screenshots of my map, uh, my Google Maps when we were there. That's right where we were at, kind of in the wilderness of Paran area. It's a little bit, uh, actually, no, that's right. Okay, this is the whole, oh, you can't see it on there. No, I just changed it. The whole Sinai Peninsula goes all the way down there. You see the two fingers for the, what is this? What is this body of water in the south? The Red Sea, right. And do you remember what the name of that gulf is on the right side, the eastern side? The Gulf of Aqaba, right. That's what the Jordanians call it. Do you remember what the Israelites call it? The Gulf of Elat, right, E-I-L-A-T, the Gulf of Elat. But you're right, you got it, and, and it's called both, it's called both, but depending on which side you're on. But the wilderness of Paran there is, is just to the north of that, so right where that little dot is, is really kind of the whole wilderness of Paran. But what you have happening here is that Isaac was born, and of course God had promised that Isaac was, was the son of promise, and that all of the, the blessings and the seed was going to go through Isaac. And uh, so verse number 10, well, let's, actually, let's go back to verse number 9. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, 
which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Well, then we fast forward to verse number 21. Actually, let's go back in verse 20. And God was with the lad, talking about Ishmael, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. Well, again, pretty obvious because uh, here's the wilderness of Paran and right there is Egypt, right? So not necessarily that too many people were living in that Sinai Peninsula area uh, because it is wilderness and it's, it's very mountainous as we saw some of that last week with the wilderness of Zin. But Egypt is right here, so it wouldn't have been hard for her to go into Egypt and get a, uh, get a, son for, or get a wife for her son. But then obviously, uh, Ishmaelites, they were, in, they were a thorn in the side of the Israelites for, for uh, generations and generations to come. So that's the wilderness of Paran, and we're going to continue on with that. But it's also called Faran. It was Ishmael's territory there, and we just read Genesis 21-21. Turn over to Numbers chapter 12. Israel traveled through the wilderness here. Uh, in their wanderings, and, and that kind of goes without saying, but I want to show you that they were actually here in this place. Uh, Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 16. Um, right there in Genesis chapter 12, God had given the covenant to Abraham that he was going to bless his seed, um, um, and that, um, or, or not to, well, I guess it was to Abraham, but, oh yeah, now the Lord said unto Abram, get thee out of the country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto the land that I will show thee. I'll make thee a great nation. I will bless thee. I'll make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing. Verse number three, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. We move down to verse number 16. He entreated Abraham, Abram. I'm in the wrong, I'm in the wrong passage. No, I was like, wait a second. I know. What did that have? That? Abraham was not there in the wilderness. This is Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. Not Genesis. Did I tell you, did I say Genesis? Oh, oh, is everybody in Genesis? <laughs> but it says numbers on there. Numbers 12, verse 16. And uh, this is actually pretty interesting. Verse number 14, the Lord sent unto Moses. Okay, so uh, uh, in, in, Gen in Numbers chapter 12, Moses and uh, Aaron rebelled against Moses. God judged Miriam, uh, gave her leprosy. Moses interceded on her behalf. Verse number 13, Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, Heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. Verse 14, and the Lord said unto Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut out from the camp seven days, and after that let her be received in again. And Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days, and the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. And afterward the people removed from Hazeroth and pitched in the wilderness of Paran. So uh, some of these pictures that I'm going to show you are... Right there where they very, very easily could have been. The wilderness, it's big, it's big, but it's not so big that you almost can see, if, especially if you get high enough, you can almost see the whole thing. So the fact that the children of Israel were there, you're going to see pictures where very, very possibly the children of Israel camped and, um, you know, many, many, many generations ago. But turn over to 1 Samuel 25. We're going to we'll keep looking at these. 1 Samuel 25. Um, David fled to Paran from Saul. Uh, Saul obviously was out to get him. Samuel had already anointed David as the king. And uh, Samuel was kind of that buffer that David needed. 
uh, Samuel kept Saul in check. He was kind of the only one that could. But then we see in 1 Samuel 25 and verse number 1, And Samuel died, and all the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him and buried him in his house at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So there David. David flees uh, from Saul because he was scared for his life. And what a better place to go than all the way down to the south part of Israel in the wilderness of Paran. Um, well, let's look at one more. We have also that the 12 spies were sent to observe the promised land. And this is in Numbers chapter 13. So go, go to Numbers 13. I think this is also very interesting. Um, a passage here. And, and again, uh, one of the things that really struck me, I've read these passages so many times in the Bible, right? And when it says they went up into a mountain, Caleb was taking the mountain, right? And, and you just kind of think of these little rolling hills or something like that. But I'll show you these pictures in a minute. They are mountains. They really are mountains. And um, <clears throat> anyway, before we get too far, Numbers chapter 13, verse number 3. And uh, of course, uh, the Lord told Moses to do this, and so now he does. Verse number 3, And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran. All those men were heads of the children of Israel. So that's where the children of Israel were camped. And now remember, what's the promised land? Canaan, right? And all of, these, all of these areas right here, okay, and you see all these are highlighted because this is the area that all of the tribes took, okay? Here's the Dead Sea. So we're, we're a little bit farther up, all right? It's probably about in this area right here, but they're down here in the wilderness of Paran. He's sending them up into the promised land to go spy it out. And, and it's a very well-known story to us, but lists all from verse 4 through basically 15, 16. Those are the ones that Moses sent out to, to, to spy out the land. Verse number 17, and Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan <clears throat> and said to them, get you up this way southward and go up into the mountain and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwell therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether they be good or bad, and so on. <clears throat> Verse number uh, 29, this is, this is so interesting if you actually think about what, who we're talking about and what we're talking about here. Uh, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. And, of course, all the rest of the spies, other than Joshua, decided, no, it's too much. We can't do it. That's why they ended up wandering in that wilderness for 40 years. But they came out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, went up into the wilderness of Paran. And that's where they were at when Moses sent them up to spy out the land. Told them to go up and hide in the mountains, right? And you'll see here uh, as we go through the very, very mountainous area. There you go. <clears throat> it is kind of hard to get an idea of exactly how big everything is if you don't have something to compare it to necessarily. And I don't really have any people in there for you to compare it to. But talk about a mountainous area. You talk about a nice, big, flat, open area as well, kind of at the base of those mountains uh, where they can go up and, and, I mean, where they could set up camp and where they, where they could uh, set up their tents and everything else. But, but it also gives you an idea. Now, we didn't go to Mount Sinai, but that's where Moses was when God gave him the Ten Commandments. And, uh, of course, it, you know, when you think of mountains and, and the people are at the bottom and Moses is at the top and he doesn't really have any idea what's going on at the bottom, right? They built the golden calf. They were dancing around it. And Moses didn't hear all of that stuff going on until he came back down the mountain. 
And as he was coming down, he heard it. That'll give you an idea of how, how big these mountains really are. And when you actually see the landscape and see how wide open and how vast this area is, but, uh, and, and, and you see this, we're, we're on the road, obviously, we're driving. I've got a couple videos for you as well, and that might open it up a little bit more. But you can see the road that runs right through uh, down in the bottom there. There's a road that runs through, and I can't point at it. And I, I guess I can point to it, but right here is a road. And this runs all the way through there. That'll give you maybe a little bit of an idea of how vast that area is. You're talking 2 million plus people that were in the, that were in the camp of the children of Israel, right? I mean, that's a lot of people. Uh, think about how wide and spread out they would be. So uh, they probably needed most of, of those wilderness areas for them to be able to, uh, to actually camp and to spread out the way they needed to. Just different. Uh, Wadi Paran, um, again, this is, this is all the area that Ishmael would have run through. I mean, who knows how much of that area Ishmael touched. I feel like he probably knew the, the wilderness of Paran like the back of his hand by the time he actually grew up and was, uh, you know, uh, an archer and all of that stuff. But a wadi, and you'll see this, you'll see it on the maps in different places and things, but wadi is an Arabic word for a valley or a riverbed that's dry most of the year. Uh, during their rainy season, it'll fill up, and a lot of times it'll really flood, and it'll, it'll wash a lot of things out. Um, but that's what a wadi is, and, and really you can just get an idea of how easy it would be for that water to flow through there. Um, but that's, that's what wadi Paran is, and there you can see there's a road that runs through that side that might give you a little picture of how big we're talking here. Uh, but just, just very, very mountainous and very hilly. But then also at the bottom of those hills, you can see how wide open it is where they really could have camped, really could have set up the tabernacle and all of those things. So I believe this is a video, is it? There we go. Uh, we were driving there, and obviously we're going, you know, what, 40, 50, 60 miles an hour, and you can see how slow we're passing everything just because of how big it is. And, uh, oh, maybe that was a little bit slower because of the, the curves, but give you an idea of how high up we are there too. But I believe um, as we're driving past this area right here, and this is kind of that Wadi Paran area, uh, there's, a <clears throat> there's like a, a big uh, tower for uh, like electric and, and how small that looks, you know, just because of how big that whole area is. Yeah, that was, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> but then it opens back up on the other side there and uh, I was, I was going back through my videos and pictures I was looking at, and I was about right here as I was looking at it, and all of a sudden I was like, whoa, that's, that's a little bit too close. Make you, uh, make you a little bit sick, but there you go. That's probably a good picture of, of uh, again, a very good possibility for where the Israelites would have camped there in the wilderness of Paran. See how open and flat that is, but then how mountainous it is right around it. So um, very good pictures there of, of what the wilderness of Paran looks like. Wide open area there. See the mountains in the background. Um, I believe, and I might, I might be misspeaking here, but I don't think I am. I believe that all of those mountains, and it's, it, you can barely see it. There, you see them rising up, almost looks like a little bit of a blue. Those are the mountains of Jordan on the other side. Um, because again, we were, where, where we are when we're taking these pictures is probably right down about in this area right here. So um, this, this is all the mountains of Jordan. So for the most part, when we were, when we were, traveling all the way through this whole area, you look over to the east and you can pretty much see these mountains. That's how big they are and how tall they are. And they really make a, a very easy separation between Jordan and Israel. And, uh, and actually, uh, before they had 
semi-good relations. Uh, they had stuff set up all the way throughout those mountains that they were using to fire rockets and everything else into, uh, into Israel. It was a very, very dangerous thing for them until they basically got a handle on the situation and, and uh, put an end to it and, and kind of made peace with them. But a couple more pictures here. Give you an idea. And these, I mean, these were not all in the same place. I mean, we're just driving. I'm just taking pictures as we're driving. So you can really just see how a lot of it looks very much the same and uh, how very easy it would have been for them to set up a camp for two million people right there, right? And uh, there's a little bit more of a video. I didn't, I didn't put the sound on because really it's just a lot of people on the bus talking and having conversations and the guide talking and everything else. So with all of that going on, I figured it's just easier to do it without any sound and I'll point things out to you as I see them. But yeah, so all right. So then we go down in the, as we're continuing on in the wilderness of Paran and right here is Elot, which we'll talk about later. But just above that, right in this little area right here, very, very much on the border between Israel and Jordan is Timnah Park, and um, Timnah Park um, is is the location of ancient copper mines in the time of King Solomon. Uh, they got it wrong originally, and they know that now. Uh, they thought that King Solomon's copper mines were actually there. They were not. They were they were farther south, very uh, closer to Elot. Now, obviously, we're talking we're talking right here. Here is Elot. So we're just talking a very, very little bit of a distance, but they found copper mines. And um, so those sites in the park have been excavated and exposed in the last 50 years um, by the Arava expedition and the archaeological team from Tel Aviv University. And they have found all kinds of different things. But again, this is the wilderness of Paran. This is what the Israelites would have seen, would have walked past, would have, would have been exposed to. Uh, and we're going to see some things here in just a minute I think will be very interesting to you. But in 2016, there's still so much archaeology going on in Israel. And you think a land that is 30, you know, that's had inhabitants for over 3,500 years, that they would have exposed everything that's there to expose. But uh, obviously not. In 2016, they found, uh, they exposed dozens of clothing items from the era of King David and King Solomon that allowed them to see uh, new uh, um, information about the techniques of dyeing clothes and types of fabric and weaving and all of that kind of stuff. So just very, very interesting things. Now, I'll tell you, um, the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat a cheesy joke that our guide told us, but it's pretty funny. Do you know who the most famous archaeologist in Israel is? Bulldozer. <laughs> he said that about 500 times. But uh, what happens is, obviously... Uh, especially there in the Negev and, and in other areas, they are, uh, they're not necessarily doing excavations. They're not looking for these places necessarily. What's happening is they go get uh, a permit to dig, and if they start digging and they find any kind of ancient anything, they have to immediately stop. And they call in the archaeological teams. They call in you know, Tel Aviv University or whoever else is interested in whatever it happens to be. And they cannot continue with that building until they've excavated that site and said, this is nothing important or this is a really important site. You need to go build somewhere else. So, so the, the, uh, the builders hate it. The contractors hate it. Um, but you, you, you also could see how you, how you could just lose valuable, valuable information by them just continuing to dig and putting a building on top of an ancient civilization where there's, you know, 
uh, where they could really find out some things that would be very interesting for history and research and everything else. So I don't think that's what happened in this area. I don't think they had any intention of building a building or something like that, but they found all kinds of things in recent years because of their famous archaeologist, Bulldozer. But um, very, very, uh, very interesting. So the site revealed clothing ranging from simple peasant attire to fine and delicate materials, which have surprisingly been preserved thanks to the extreme dry climate that they have there uh, in that region. This area right here, and I'm going to give you a little bit closer picture of it uh, a little bit later on, is known as Solomon's Pillars, and you can kind of see it. It, it. it almost looks like that, and, and again, it's a misnomer because it was not actually Solomon's copper mines that were there. Uh, it was just ancient copper mines, but they found olive pits and fish bones, um, and just by the, the things that they found there, they were able to date it back to that same time, the time of David and Solomon. does not necessarily mean that David and Solomon were there, but it dates back to the time of David and Solomon. Um, and again, you realize, I think this is a video maybe. This one's a video. Just give you a good picture of, of how wide open and then straight up mountains. Um, but this is, a, this is a national park now there in Israel. It's, it's called Timnah Park. And uh, a few other things that are very, very interesting, and this is one of them. In Timnah Park, they have a, a complete, precise, authentic model right down to the very colors of the tabernacle that the children of Israel would have had there in the wilderness, and they've made it to the exact size. They've made it uh, even in, in a location where it very possibly might have been located. Um, uh, it's not, you know, it's obviously it's nothing to do with the real tabernacle other than they've tried to build it to the exact specifications and exactly what it would have looked like if it was there in the wilderness. So the priests walking into the outer court and the other people who were, who were there that were walking into the outer court would have very likely seen the exact same scene behind them with all the mountains and everything else wide open and, uh, um, and just the different things. So this is what it would have looked like. This is, this is an artist's drawing of the tabernacle as closely as they could uh, get it to the real thing. And of course, you see... Uh, you see how the, the tents are just all kind of snaked through the mountains. And, uh, and again, just because of that area, you've seen all those pictures of what it looks like. But um, this was their houses. You know, I think a lot of times when we think tents, we think of a little camping tent, you know. Um, but that's why if uh, when they went to Jericho and um, Achan stole those things from Jericho and he came in and he buried them under his tent, right? It, I mean, they, they would have... They would have set up their, their house, their tent, as it was called. They would have had rugs and things like that in there to make it more comfortable and make it like home. Uh, but he probably pulled up a rug, dug a hole in it, dropped those things in there, threw the dirt outside somewhere somehow, and then put his rug back over the top of it. Would have very easily, they very easily would have been able to hide those things. Now, um, I, he would have broken a sweat for sure because that area is very rocky. And very, uh, ground is very hard. Um, you know, I don't know how, he must have been thinking, boy, I shouldn't have gotten something so big, or I don't know what. But, but that's, that's exactly how it was set up. The, the, uh, the Levites were there right around the tabernacle, and then all the different tribes had all their own places that they were supposed to be. And every time they packed up, moved, and set back up, they would set up the exact same way again. So uh, I guess you better hope you liked your neighbor, because you're probably going to be next to him for the next 40 years. So... Um, Learn how to get along, I guess. But now, tent camping is permitted in the park. The Timna Park is actually uh, very well known for hiking 
and biking and, and uh, like uh, rock climbing and things like that because of, you saw the pictures, I mean, just straight up mountains and there are trails all the way over there. Uh, and they've actually dug a, uh, like a, they hit a spring and they have like a natural uh, uh, lake there that, they, that people can uh, set up around and whatever else. So it really is like a national park that you would think of. All these were tents, uh, people who were staying there. And I thought it was kind of interesting because that's kind of what it would have looked like then. But you can see the, the tabernacle is there in the background, kind of give you, and, and I took a picture with some of those tents in there just to kind of give you a little bit of a picture of how big it is. We'll see some more of people standing in there as well, but see the mountain right there in the background and uh, uh, very, very likely exactly what it would have been like for them as they were there as well. You can see the car over there on the other side, and that'll kind of give you a picture of just how big the tabernacle and all that area is, but uh, there's the outer, that's the outer tent area that, that gets you into the outer court. Um, there you go. There's a picture of that, that tabernacle from the top. And you can see people standing in it. That's, in fact, I think that's our group. A lot of those were people in our group. But just kind of give you an idea of how big actually that is. And there's, you know, there's our bus. There's some cars uh, around it. But um, it's, it's there in the setting that very possibly it would have been in, in the wilderness. So then we go inside. And uh, the posts and everything else, the way that everything was tied was, was very, very similar to the way that it would have been. Um, I think I took that picture over the gate before we walked in and before there was a lot of people there and everything else. But um, <clears throat> what is, uh, let's, let's, let's uh, see how, how much you know. What is that that you can see right there? What is it? The brazen altar, right. What is, what is this? The bronze laver, right? Yeah. yeah. And there's the, obviously the tabernacle itself. So there's the brazen altar. And, and actually, to me, I, I don't know what I ever pictured, but to me it was much bigger than I thought it would be. Um, and I don't know if I took a closer picture. There you go. So you see the shovels and the, and the pitchforks and everything else, but that's where, the, uh, where they would have been sacrificed. And... Um, Again, without somebody sitting in it or something like that, which obviously we weren't going to do, it's hard to see how big it really is, um, but, but that's the brazen altar. Uh, there's the bronze laver. Again, that's another thing that was much bigger than I thought it would be. Um, <laughs> this is interesting. In the, um, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, uh, of course, uh, don't want to get too far ahead of myself because we're going to get there when we get to Jerusalem, but one of the things that the Jews are preparing for is rebuilding the temple for the third time, right? You had the first temple that was destroyed. It was rebuilt. It was destroyed the second time in 70 AD, and it's never been rebuilt since. They're waiting for the Messiah to come because when the Messiah comes, he's going to rebuild the temple, and he's going to institute the sacrifices and all of those other things and basically kickstart everything again. We're waiting for our Messiah to come the second time. They're waiting for the Messiah to come the first time. And, and exactly who they describe is the Antichrist, and he's going to come in, and he's going to institute those things. They have everything they need already for that third tabernacle, I mean, for that third temple. And um, they can be up and running and doing sacrifices in two weeks. That's how ready they are for this thing to happen. And uh, they've, got, they've got the menorah built, which, uh, you know, the little model of this, I'll show you a picture of. I've, they, you, you can, the menorah is in the middle of the town square in Jerusalem behind really thick glass, but right there in the middle for everybody to see it. It's worth well over $2 million because it's, it's all, 
It's, uh, it's, it's, the entire thing is covered in gold, solid gold. Um, they have all kinds of things inside the Temple Institute. They didn't let you take pictures of it. But if you wanted to go and look at it, look it up, you can. The videos and things like that are on their website. Uh, like I said, we're going to talk about it a little bit more when we get to Jerusalem. But the bronze laver that they've built for the third temple looks nothing like this. It's actually high-tech, very high-tech. And uh, one of the things about this, the bronze laver, which they didn't have it here, but the bronze laver actually had mirrors on the inside of it. And um, that was one of the things that, that God told them to do when they built it. This one, the one that they have in the Temple Institute, does not have anything like that. It's got, um, you know, they have to keep their water separated and things like that. So they've got high-tech uh, stuff inside the bronze laver that you can't even see, where you can turn on certain faucets and different things like that. And it's, it's pretty amazing what they've done, but it's nothing like this. But this is what the Bible describes, and this is very possibly what it would have looked like when the priests were going in there. And, of course, they had to wash every time they would go into uh, the, the tabernacle. There's the, uh, the um, help me out, not the bronze laver, the one next to it, the brazen altar. The brazen altar, the bronze laver. Um, this is looking at it from the other side, okay, back out toward the front. I'll give you a picture of how big that is there. There's the entrance into the holy place, and of course the veils and all of those things that were there. And, and again, you have to remember that the tabernacle was very temporary, right? Uh, they had to make it so that it could be picked up and taken down and moved to the next place. And that's what they did. So you think about, you know, any other building would have stuff dug into the ground and everything else. This doesn't have any of that, right? Because they, they can't really dig it into the ground. They have to be able to move it when God says move, right? And uh, by the way, how did they know when to move? Cloud, right? Pillar of fire when? At night, and what was the other one? Pillar of a cloud, right? And when the cloud moved, that's when they were time to get up and go. They didn't know when it was going to be, uh, but they had to be ready to move. So very, very uh, temporary. Uh, but there's the entrance. There's the table of showbread when you get on the inside of there. And uh, I, don't, I don't have the time. We, we, we did a whole series on this uh, uh, maybe a couple of years ago now. I don't have time to get into all of those and the significances of everything, but uh, at least to be able to see it. Uh, of course, all the walls, and, and this is, they're just painted, but all the walls were overlaid with gold. But you can see the panels. You see how the panels are there? And again, same thing. I mean, how, how can you carry a giant wall that's overlaid in gold, right? You, you can't. I mean, it would just been too impossible and too awkward to carry, especially through the wilderness with the rocks and everything else. So all of it had to be disassembled. But this is right inside the door there. So... Um, that's where the picture was taken from. So you see the table of showbread. You see the menorah, the, the golden candlesticks. You see the high priest. I'm going to zoom in on that uh, in a little bit. You see the altar of incense, and then the, uh, the curtain in the back is the entrance to the Holy of Holies. What was inside the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Manna, Aaron's rod, and the Ten Commandments, right? And they actually have it. I don't know what I ever pictured it would look like with those things inside there, um, but they have it there, and I'll show it to you in a minute. Um, there's the menorah, the golden candlesticks. That's kind of a very crude uh, uh, replica, yeah, yeah, very crude replica of it. The, the new one that they've built is very, very beautiful, um, but you had the seven golden candlesticks, and on the top of each one of those, you had the, the oil lamps, right? Because they were lit. That's the only light they had in there uh, would have been coming from the golden candlesticks. 
There's the altar of incense. And again, it has the staves through it because that's what they would use to carry it. Uh, there's the high priest. Okay? Um, he had different robes. You see on the bottom, he has the pomegranates and the bells. Right? Why did he have the bells on the bottom of his robe? The holy place. Yep. Yeah, if he was in there with sin or he didn't do something right and he collapsed, they had, and those bells stopped moving, they had, a, they had a rope attached to him and they would just drag him out by his, by his feet, right? Now, we don't have any recording in the Bible of somebody that that, that did happen to, but that's, that's one of the things that would have done. And then, of course, you have all the 12 uh, precious stones that were right there in the, in the middle, uh, representing all the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And, and everything that he had on uh, represented something. And um, again, they've got all of those clothes built and ready to go. Um, the, the ephod is what that is called. That was, it's ready to go. Uh, the, 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 uh, the thing that he wears around his head, is, it's, it's all ready to go. It's there in the Temple Institute. And as soon as they get the word, the temple is rebuilt, they're ready in two weeks to start doing sacrifices again. So they're, they're 100% expecting that Messiah to come at any moment and then rebuild that. So there you go. Altar of incense, high priest, entrance to the Holy of Holies. Give you a picture of what it looked like. So there, that's us inside now the Holy of Holies looking back out to kind of give you a picture of how big everything is. And, of course, you see all the, the very fine linens and everything else that's draped on the ceiling as well. Um, all of that was on the inside, and then what you saw, and I think maybe I'll give you one more picture of it, but the whole thing that was covered completely from the outside that kind of gave stability to it. Nobody obviously knows what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. We know that there was cherubim, and we know that they had... Uh, uh, wings that, over, that overlooked the mercy seat, which is where the presence of God was, right there in that center section, right there. And uh, those cherubim were overlooking that. And, um, but nobody knows what it looks like. In fact, the one that's in the, uh, it's in the Temple Institute, that is their Ark of the Covenant, is it's quite a bit different than that. Um, similar, but um, uh, I have no idea where the Ark of the Covenant is, and neither do they. God might have taken the Ark of the Covenant back to heaven. Um, maybe that, maybe uh, the, the, a lot of the Jews are convinced that the Ark of the Covenant is buried in the Temple Mount um, uh, under the Dome of the Rock, which uh, I'll show you a lot of pictures of that later when we get to Jerusalem. But the Dome of the Rock is actually a Muslim mosque now, and they don't allow anyone in there that's not Muslim. There's all kinds of chambers and things underneath there. There was an archaeologist who said that he saw the Ark of the Covenant under there. Uh, they were not allowed to do it, but he took a secret mission, took, took three or four guys with him, and they dug in, and they found this little chamber, and right about the time they got to that chamber, they were discovered, and uh, they got you know, arrested and, and taken out. This was back in the 1920s or 30s, I think, when that happened. But this archaeologist said that he saw what he believed was the Ark of the Covenant. Did he, or is he just making it up because, you know, it's a, it makes for a good story, or who knows what he actually saw, but he was convinced that he saw the Ark of the Covenant. So there's many Jews who actually believe that the Ark of the Covenant is there. Now, when that third temple is going to be rebuilt, the way that the, that the old one is destroyed is... There's going to be an earthquake. The Temple Mount is going to be split in two. I mean, everything there is basically going to be destroyed. And that will give them the opportunity at that point to go in there and see if it's there or not. And, uh, and then rebuild the third temple and everything else. But uh, that's just an artist's rendering of what the Ark of the Covenant could possibly have looked like. Nobody knows. But there's a, 
And that kind of give you an idea of, of, of what it looks like. Inside there is the Ten Commandments, which you see there. You see Aaron's rod that budded, and you see the bowl of manna. And I think I got a little bit closer picture of it in there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what I ever thought it would look like. I, I guess probably something like that I had in my mind to actually be able to see a picture of what somebody thinks it looks like. It's pretty interesting. But Yeah, Aaron's rod that budded. Yeah, the bowl of manna on that side, which, what does the Bible say that manna looked like? Coriander seed, right. So, I mean, that's, that's what it looked like. And uh, um, I, I think, and, and the Bible doesn't say this, this is just kind of reading into it, but, I mean, how can you eat the exact same thing for 40 years that tastes exactly the same, right? I think God made it taste different every, every day, you know? And, uh, boy, could you imagine if you ate manna and you didn't like it and you had to eat that for 40 years? <laughs> no wonder they complain, right? Well, maybe one day it tasted like strawberries, and the next day it tasted like, you know, chicken nuggets or something. I don't know. But uh, I think God changed it up a little bit just to give them some different things. But that's what the Bible says that manna looked like. And they put a bowl of manna in there just to remind them of what God did for them in the wilderness. There's the outside covering. So this is, this is the area that we've been in that whole time. And, of course, you see all the rods that are going through it and everything else to help them carry it and take it apart and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course... There's the, uh, what was the outside covering made out of? Do you remember? Huh? Badger. Badger skins, yep. So there's, uh, just, just kind of moving through this a little bit quicker. There's Solomon's pillars. There, it's natural sandstone pillars that are part of that cliff wall. And just from natural erosion and everything else, the, it's, it's gotten in there and made it look like pillars. Um, I think I actually mentioned it here. Yeah, they developed as a result of erosion along cracks in the hard red sandstone. They're named after King Solomon due to a mistaken early theory that copper mining and production were a result of Solomon's activities in that area. There is copper mines in that area, just not Solomon's activities. That was further south, uh, much closer to the Red Sea, um, which obviously, as I mentioned already, we're very close to the Red Sea. It's right here in this area. The Red Sea is right here, so it is very close, but there, there, that gives you a really good picture of just how wide open and flat that is and very, very possibly that the children of Israel actually had set up their own camp right there and uh, might be looking at where they were at. There's a road that runs through the middle of it, but just kind of give you an idea of how vast this whole area is. Um, this might be a video. Yeah, there we go. So all the way up through there, there's uh, mountain biking trails. There's little places that are set up for people to get in there and, and do some free climbing and whatever else they want to do. Um, but it's just a wide open area, wide open area, very, very beautiful. And look at the mountains in the background. See how big those are? I mean, so that's not Mount Sinai, but it gives you a kind of a picture of what it would have looked like when they went up into the mountain, you know? Um, I mean, how many times did you he do you read? And, and we'll see this as we get a little bit closer. Maybe not as big in the Galilee area. Um, but where the Bible says Jesus went up into a mountain to pray. Don't ever think of it being something that big, you know. But they're just, you know, they're not, they're not, it's not Pikes Peak and, you know, the Matterhorn and stuff like that. But they're tall. They're really tall. Four or 5,000 feet in a lot of cases. Some more pictures of all that whole area. All right. Now let me, uh, we'll close with this. Because the Negev, the, Israel really has plans for that Negev area. It's, it is a desert. Um, but humanly speaking, Israel owns the Negev today because of the forward thinking of David Ben-Gurion. Who's David Ben-Gurion? The first prime minister of Israel, right? What year? 
1948, right? That's when they declared their independence. But David Ben-Gurion um, put into motion what's known as the 11 Points Plan, also called Operation Negev. And what that was is, uh, according to the British plan of July of 1946, so this is before Israel declared their independence, for the partitioning of the land of Palestine, the Negev was going to be given to the Arabs because there weren't any existing Jewish settlements there. And, uh, of course... Israel really didn't have a lot to do with the Negev area. Everything was pretty much Dead Sea, South Dead Sea, and north of that. Um, and you can kind of see all these areas here. Um, the Arabs were the ones who were down in that area and everything else. Really, nobody lived there, though. So under the direction of Ben-Gurion, they made secret plans. And those secret plans, of the Jewish agency, the Haganah Defense Forces, the Me Mekarat Water Company, they were going to establish uh, settlements in the Negev so that the British had to recognize the fact that they had people living in the Negev. And hopefully then, when they saw that there were settlements there, they would uh, give that land to Israel. That's what the idea was. And so the Jewish National Fund purchased the land for those settlements, and then they, they supplied water uh, to the area by pipe from farther north, and they actually used um, uh, fire extinguishing pipes that were used in London during the German bombing raids. What was, when, when did World War II end? 1945, 46, right? So this is July of 1946, getting into 1947. So you have all of this wartime stuff that's left over. This was actually fire extinguishing pipe. In fact, here's another picture of, of all of those pipes that they were using. Just stacks and stacks and stacks of pipes that they purchased from England. England maybe didn't have any idea what they were doing with it, but they used that to get water down into the desert and to... Uh, Collect, they collected all the materials, all the buildings were prefabricated and everything else. And then, uh, in one night, on October 6th of 1946, 11 small settlements were created. And a lot of those are what became the kibbutzes later on. So, kibbutz Sidi Boker, uh, Yodvata was another one, which Yodvata is all the way down here at the bottom. But every one of them had two buildings for living, one for dining, storage sheds, a toilet, and a washing facility, two sandbag posts, a barbed wire fence, and a wooden tower with a water tank for domestic use. Can't say that people aren't living there, right? Now, it, it, took, it took very uh, courageous people who are willing to go and live in these places because, again, it is a desert. It's not, there's nothing uh, nice about it, but the original Negev settlements had a total of about 400 pioneers who had to learn how to farm a desert. Now, they had the, the slight advantage of being able to bring in some of that water that was, that was being pushed in through those pipes and everything else, but... Fierce heat, uh, salty land, locust invasions. I mean, all kinds of stuff that was there that they had to deal with. The heat alone is terribly oppressive. The temperature regularly hits 104 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade. I mean, that is, that is oppressive heat, and there's no shade in the desert for the most part. And if you know anything about the desert, it gets extremely hot at night and very cool in the, uh, extremely hot in the day, very cool at night. And uh, just trying to make anything grow there is, is amazing. Uh, but they did it because they wanted, to, uh, they wanted to be able to claim that land for Israel. And looking forward to today, as, uh, it's been almost 80 years later. Um, all those places are still there for the most part, and, and way more has been done. But the Kibbutz Hetzerim, it's one of the 11 points. So the 11 points plan is basically each settlement was a point. A, 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 a place where people lived. And so, I mean, 3.9, less than 3.9 inches of rain annually. 
There's the kibbutz at Yod Fata, which again I mentioned is right down here at the bottom, but just desolate, you know. But then you see these trees and, and everything flourishing there on those kibbutzes, but that's, that's how they did it. Uh, there's the original buildings. That's from 1946 when they built it. Um, obviously falling apart now. We didn't actually go there. These are pictures that uh, Brother Cloud actually had on the, on the uh, parts of the presentation. But there's the, the parts of the Negev today. Pleasant oasis, variety of shade trees, plenty of water, gardens, comfortable modern facilities, prosperous businesses. Their plan is to, to populate all of the Negev because they're trying to bring all the Jewish people back to Israel. And obviously, with the land size that it is, you can only fit so many people into here. So where else do you put them? You put them down here. But how do you put people in a desert? You have to do stuff like this. So they're bringing water in, and I'll, I'll mention this in just a minute, but that's Kibbutz Yod Fata. I mean, look at that place. Who wouldn't want to live there? Right? I mean, it's just a beautiful oasis. It's in the middle of the desert. But they've, they've, uh, they've brought all these things in. Uh, there's En Gedi near the Dead Sea. We're going to talk about that uh, next week, or actually not next week, week after, but beautiful place. I mean, look at this. It's in the middle of a desert. Never would think that that was possible. That's another one of the 11 points. Look at all those trees. I mean, just amazing. Uh, 1996, they had a stamp that commemorated the 50th anniversary of the 11 points. Um, but he envisioned the development of the Negev. And uh, there's a picture of him in his study at Sidibo Care. Um, I don't know who snapped that, but it wasn't me. But the first major pipeline to the Negev was built in about 1949 to transpo transport water from the Yarkon River, which is about 100 miles to the north. And, and actually, uh, so the, in 1964, uh, they, they bring in about a billion cubic meters annually to the Negev from the Sea of Galilee and from other sources. I mean, just amazing the amount of water. 3.8 billion gallons of water they bring down there into the south. That's a lot of water. And that's how they're able to make these things possible. But look at this. I mean, planting and trees, and, and they're at the forefront of desert reclamation through forestation. And I'll show you this in just a minute, just the amazing thing that they've been able to do. God, God, this, this is prophecy being fulfilled. I'm going to show you one verse at the very end here in just a couple minutes, um, but you'll see exactly why. Look at this. This is the Yatir Forest on the southern slopes of Mount Hebron. It's a desert. And look, look how lush that vegetation is. That's all been done through forestation in the desert, bringing water into that area, planting trees. Um, it's in the northwestern Negev, east of the Dead Sea. But, but still desert, and what they're trying to do is just slowly work that thing all the way down to the point where all of those areas are habitable for people to live in um, because they have to have a place for all of these people that are coming back uh, to live. And, and just they're moving back by the thousands, by the thousands. And actually that is mentioned in the Bible, Joshua 15, 1 Chronicles 6, but that's the ruins of the old city. It's at the edge of the forest. We didn't actually get an opportunity to go there. Um, but... When the forest was envisioned in 1965, Joseph Weitz, the director of the Afforestation Department of the Jewish National Fund, the Jewish National Fund funds a lot of things. The Jewish National Fund is what's funding all of these Jews coming back to Israel and everything else. But how can you build a forest here in the desert? At the time, it was this. I mean, that's what everything looked like. And uh, I've showed you a lot of pictures of that. Today, the Yatir Forest covers 7,500 acres. It's thriving. It's growing. And uh, over 4 million trees that are in that area. And, of course, the more trees you get, the more that 
develops more of that vegetation and forestation and everything else. So uh, just unbelievable. Um, I'll show you some pictures of the trees. But you see the people standing down there at the bottom. You can see how big these trees are. But that's the Aleppo pine, the Jerusalem pine is what it's also known as. Cypress trees, you see those all over the place. Uh, one that's really popular uh, is the terebinth. They have, uh, and, and again, just, for, just so that everything is not the same and pollination and everything else. They've done a ton of research into all of that stuff to know which ones grow the best in those climates and with each other and everything else. The tamarisk is another one. Um, uh, this is the Christ thorn. Um, and I'll show you a picture of that a little bit closer up as we get closer. But that's uh, more than likely what they, the tree that they would have used to make the crown of thorns that they shoved on Jesus' head. And um, actually in En Gedi, which is what we'll look at the next time, they had, a, they had a couple of those Christ thorn trees, and um, I took some very, very close-up pictures of it so you can see what it looks like, but we'll get to that next time. The carob is another one. The carob seeds were what they used for measuring uh, weights and measures and uh, grams and things like that. That's, how they, that's, how, that's what they used to, uh, uh, to tell the, the, the weights and the measures of things. And uh, The olive tree, olive trees everywhere there. Uh, the eucalyptus tree is another one. The acacia tree, you see acacia trees all over the place as well because, again, they grow with, with minimal water, uh, and that's obviously what they have there in the desert. But they had a major climatic effect, halted the, desert, the, the desertification advance north of Beersheba, 20 miles to the southwest. And we talked about that. Beersheba is right up here in this area right here. Um, Beersheba in the north, Elot in the south. That was kind of the north and south of the Negev, remember. But they want to put 250,000 residents in the desert. I mean, that's a, that's a huge undertaking if you think about it. But again, it's prophecy being fulfilled. All those people coming back to the nation of Israel, the people coming back to the land, waiting for their Messiah, quote-unquote, the Antichrist. All right, let's turn to Isaiah 35, and we'll be done. Because I want to read you this. Uh, in Isaiah 35, and, and uh, this chapter really is... Um, it's. It's talking about the coming kingdom. It's prophetic. Uh, the whole chapter is prophetic. But it says there, in fact, let's just start there in verse number one. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Very interesting that Carmel and Sharon are two of the most beautiful and fruitful places in the nation of Israel. And the Bible says that the desert, that Negev, that, that south area, is going to be as fruitful and as lush as Carmel and Sharon. And uh, again, that's exactly what we're seeing happening there uh, now. That is, that's prophetic about the coming kingdom of Christ. It's not far. It's not far. That's exciting. Yeah, keep, keep building that area up. Keep, keep making it look like Carmel and Sharon. That's even closer for Christ coming back, right? Uh, really, really nothing has to be fulfilled for Jesus Christ to come back. Uh, he could come at any moment and uh, wouldn't be a surprise to us in, in the way of, oh, well, this didn't happen yet or that didn't happen yet. Everything that has to happen for Christ to come back has. And uh, this is just another one of those things that had you never seen it, had you never been there, wouldn't even give a second thought to those verses when you're reading through there. But look at how barren that is, and God says that's going to be like Carmel and Sharon. What is, what is Lebanon known for? 
Cedars, right? You see it all the time, the cedars of Lebanon, right? You see that in the Bible a lot. Look what the Bible says. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon. Think about over 4 million trees that are in that area right now, and there's a lot of them that are, that are uh, um, cedars, right? The glory of Lebanon is being given to the wilderness there in the Negev. And uh, it's all God bringing those things to pass and, and making, you know, fulfilling that part of prophecy. So um, we're going to move up. And actually, uh, the next thing that we're going to see is right here next to the Dead Sea. It's En Gedi. Anybody know what happened in En Gedi? Putting you on the spot. Uh, well, I'm talking about in the Bible. Yeah, some of that, some of the, all of that happened in that general area, but I'm talking about in the Bible. Do we know what happened in En Gedi in the Bible? Mmm, homework. Homework. If you don't know, I'm not going to tell you until you, till we get back together the next time. But look it up. It's in the Bible, and it's a very, very, very familiar thing to you. You just don't know that this is what happened there, apparently. Look it up and see if you can uh, find it for next week, all right? We're done. Let's pray. And we'll sing our song at the end here, and then we'll be finished. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Again, I thank you for an opportunity we have to go through these things and just see how they all fit in with the Word of God and just give us a better picture of, of what we're reading about when we read through the Bible in the Old Testament and then later on as we get to it with the New Testament and just seeing how they all fit together and how all of it fits in with your plan and how all the prophecy is being fulfilled and how you're just using all of it uh, to, to usher in your kingdom. We're looking forward to that day, God. I, I pray that, uh, that we'd be ready and we'd be watching for you and uh, that we'd be excited about your coming as well because we're living for you. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and stand. We'll close with our song. This could be the day that the Lord returns in glory. This could be the day that he calls his children home so be faithful in service as you watch and pray for this oh this this could be the day amen you want to come up and